If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. We can take real virtual humans and we can build out a system for helping somebody on the spectrum practice how they would socially engage in a job interview context. We're adding to it all the time. We use it with veterans now. We use it with youth that are in detention centers. Clinical neuropsychologist, Dr. Albert Skip Rizzo, first introduced medical virtual reality to his patients in the 1990s. And he's been pioneering new ways of using VR in his field ever since. Dr. Rizzo, or Skip as he prefers to be called, is the Director of Medical Virtual Reality at the University of Southern California Institute for Creative Technologies. He is also a research professor and scientist, both at USC's Department of Psychology and Behavioral Sciences and in their School of Gerontology. And among the groundbreaking programs which Skip has developed is BraveMind, an interactive virtual reality-based exposure therapy tool used to assess and treat post-traumatic stress disorder. The various VR systems he currently researches, designs, and evaluates include applications for autism, post-stroke rehabilitation, and Alzheimer's disease. Skip has garnered multiple awards for his work and serves both healthy and clinical populations with his immersive technology applications. The following podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional with any medical questions. Skip, before we get to talking about the ways that you are, I'm going to quote your LinkedIn profile, using technology to drag the field of psychology, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. I would love to know how you first got introduced to VR. Oh boy. Well, it was back in the 90s and I was working as a clinician in brain injury rehab. And I was really frustrated with the level of intervention that we could do with folks. And these are folks like maybe you or me that had a car accident or a stroke, and they were fine until the accident. Now they've got the arduous task of trying to reacquire their cognitive and psychosocial abilities after a significant brain injury. And it was, a lot of it was paper and pencil stuff, you know, workbook exercises, you know, like kind of special ed kind of things, which is fine. But I always thought we needed to to really do something better. And I happened to have a student that we call them students rather than patients who came in one day, 22-year-old frontal lobe injured individual from a car accident. He had a Game Boy. And I didn't know what it was. They had just come out. And he goes, whoa, Skip, you got to see this. And I watched him. He was glued to this thing for like 15 minutes. I just watched. He's playing Tetris. And what I noticed, two things. He was way more motivated and engaged in that activity than anything I could provide him in traditional formats. And he got, he was good at it. You know, he's like a Tetris warlord. So I started thinking about, you know, using technology in specifically in brain injury rehab. And I brought in some games. I had a Nintendo system. So I brought in, uh, I had a game called SimCity, which is a very stimulating cognitive game. And then one day I heard Jaron Lanier speak on NPR about virtual reality. And it all tied together, you know, that we could build simulations of the real world and we could maybe gamify some of it and we could measure or train 
performance, whether it's cognitive or physical, in these simulations. So just like, you know, an aircraft simulator can test and train piloting ability under a range of controllable conditions, we could use VR to do the same thing in brain injury rehab, maybe get people to do more of it, but do it in a functionally relevant context where, you know, what they learn and do by practice in VR would translate to their everyday real world. So that was really the start of it. That was 1992 or three, something like that. And then I went to a conference a little while after that called Virtual Reality in Persons with Disabilities. And I met Walter Greenleaf there. And that began a lifelong friendship and my involvement in the virtual reality field, specifically at that time for persons with disabilities. What do you remember best about those first weeks after meeting Walter Greenleaf, after starting to collaborate and starting to use VR simulations to treat your students? And I love using students as opposed to patients. You know, I guess the thing I remember most is how naive I was about what the technology could do back then. You know, back then, a lot of people, you know, that just learned about VR in the last couple of years, you know, they don't realize, but there was like a really big bubble or hype cycle around VR in the early to mid 90s. TV shows about virtual reality and magazines and Sharon Lanier doing talks everywhere. You know, I really thought that, you know, we could build like what I'm sitting in front of right here, a a 3D graphic of, um, you know, virtual reality simulation for PTSD treatment. I didn't realize how primitive the technology was back in the early 90s, mid 90s. And so when I, I ended up leaving clinical practice and getting a position at USC to start to build this stuff, it was a hard reality that technology is not quite ready to do everything we wanted it to do. But, you know, the good news was two things. The vision from way back then was sound, as we see now, and the technology now has caught up with that vision. It was very difficult back then, but now we have technology, low-cost, high-fidelity graphics, low-cost equipment, We've got all that now, so we can do these things better. And we also have the science. There's been a lot of people doing scientific research over the years that has documented where it adds value. So the thing I remember most was the rude awakening when I found out, when I finally had access to building a lab at USC, how expensive and how primitive the technology. Fortunately, there were some computer scientists that took pity on me and kind of helped me out with equipment and programming time. And that's basically how I got started. I'm trying to recall what year Palmer Lucky introduced the Oculus, and I don't, but I remember they were huge headsets. They were very clunky. And yes, just like you said, very expensive. Oh, man. Fast forward to today with, if I'm not mistaken, about 30 different awards that you've won for your work in VR. What you're sitting in front of is the background, I think, for Brave Mind is too. Yep. And then also a little bit of information that I have, but not a lot, about your work with treating autism through VR. I'd sure love to know how you're using that right now on the autism spectrum for your students. Well, we were very fortunate to develop a relationship with the Dan Marino Foundation, which, you know, the famous football player, and he had a son on the spectrum, and developed a foundation that focused on helping people on the high end of the spectrum become more functionally independent, you know, live independently and 
to be able to get jobs. And as we all know, uh, there are many folks on the spectrum who are totally capable and sometimes exceptional in work environments, but they have a difficult time with the social engagement element of it and being overwhelmed in certain circumstances. And sometimes that that limits what you know what they can do in terms of specifically, in our case, job interviewing. And so the Marino Foundation heard us out when we said, we can take characters like what you're seeing behind me, uh, real virtual humans, and we can build out a system for helping somebody on the spectrum practice how they would socially engage in a job interview context. And we can build it out to make it very easy in the beginning with a character that's kind of like their same age and everything. But then we can add to it and make older characters, characters of different ethnic backgrounds. And we can make the characters either very nice, neutral, or nasty. And so, <laughs> so we had all these options that we could build into the system to give people the opportunity to practice what they would say in a job interview in a very easy, safe way to you know get them used to it. And then gradually make it a little more difficult over time as they start to, you know, develop their skills. And, you know, it was very speculative because we're, number one, we weren't sure if they would relate to these virtual human characters in any way at all. But we found that was the least, you know, challenging element of it, that that the folks that we worked with with Dan Marino Foundation, they really got engaged. And I think part of it was, was that, the characters, you know, they're not exact replicas of real people, and they might be more easily manageable initially. And, you know, there's no shame when you're practicing role-playing and you goof up with a virtual character. You know, you don't feel like an idiot or anything. <laughs> but, you know, it's different when you're role-playing with a, a vocational counselor or somebody that they bring in and you're worried and anxious. So. The idea was to help these folks, number one, practice their communication skills with a person, but also help them to feel comfortable. And kind of like what we do with exposure therapy for anxiety disorders, help a person to go into the feared situation and practice. And gradually over time, that fear in psychology, we call it uh, fear extinction. But basically, they get used to it and, and the fear isn't that much of a trigger anymore. And they're able to, you know, to do quite well. That's what the data showed. That repeated practice led to improvements within the system, but that those improvements then translated to real, real world mock interviews with vocational counselors that rated the performance. You know, the before and after comparisons were, you know, striking in terms of the improvement. So. You know, that's been a labor of love, uh, you know, over the years, and we're adding to it all the time and are expanding it. We use it with veterans now. We use it with youth that are in detention centers, justice-involved youth, and youth that are in job training programs that haven't had all the advantages that some of us are lucky to have. And so they go into these special training programs, and a foundation I work with called the Wonder Seed Foundation supports this this effort to disseminate this kind of training and help folks out. So, yeah, I mean, and it's just a toe in the water. There are a lot of good groups doing cool work with folks on the spectrum 
uh, I could tell you about, but it, you know, it evolves all on this process of giving experiential learning in a safe manner that's not overly complex, but can be made more complex over time. And so that might be a good recipe for, you know, how we can help some of the folks on the spectrum. In fact, in researching for this, I thought, well, I really don't understand autism that well because I was applying one word for anything from someone who cannot talk to a totally brilliant filmmaker whom I know. That was kind of interesting. What if someone listening has an autistic child or student or someone like that, and they don't really know what that person's going through? Are there applications that would help them understand? Well, that's a very good question because that's an important topic across all areas of mental health. How can we enhance empathy for the challenges that people face? And oddly enough, in VR, there's been quite a bit of, I don't want to say evolved research programs, but certainly everybody's taken a shot at it in different ways. So, for example, back in the mid-90s, this woman, Rita Addison, had built a simulation of what it's like to have a brain injury because she was an artist who had a car wreck and had a brain injury and gradually recovered. But she represented in VR a lot of her experiences with, you know, visual difficulties and not being able to filter out sound and so on. I know others have done the similar thing with stroke patients. There's a company now called Embodied Labs that tries to do the same thing for helping caregivers understand the life of somebody with Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And so they try to build these simulations that sometimes are overwhelming or you can't hear things clearly or things are said ambiguously. There's one for Excedrin actually built an augmented reality environment to illustrate the precursors to having a migraine, the the kind of prodromal things where you get these eye things and sound and light is too bright. And, you know, family members have found that that gives them a little more empathy. Now with autism, that's a hard one. You know, you could do it though, but there, you know, there's no one set of symptoms. And we always talk about the social element of it and the challenges, and you could build out those things to some degree, but there's a whole bunch of other things. And that would be be a big challenge. And and how do you measure it? Uh, how do you measure improvement in autism? Is it, you know, do you, you know, see how well people relate to them after? Very hard. There was one study where they actually showed a behavioral change, but it was for empathy for unhoused people, for homeless folks. And it, Jeremy Balenson did this work up at Stanford where you know, it was like maybe a 20 minute experience where you went from having an apartment and then getting laid off and then having to sell your property to pay your rent, not having enough, living in your car, living in the subway on the BART, you know, uh, train line, which they let folks stay on late at night for shelter. And what they did was when they measured empathy at the end, You know, there's empathy scales, but everybody likes to think they're empathetic. So they check yes to everything. I'm all that, you know, but they made it look like it was an accident. They had a a petition that was for an actual referendum for providing more resources to the homeless population. 
that was actually ongoing in the Bay Area. And they, they put it in like it was accidentally slipped into the packet of assessments. And they looked at how many people that went through the VR experience actually signed a petition and how many people that went through a public service announcement or whatever, doc, mini documentary, how many people signed it. And they found the people that had the immersive, embodied, experiential experience, if you will, were more likely to sign the petition. So that was like a behavior, you know, a measurable behavior. That's really what the gold standard is, is, you know, people can self-report, oh yeah, I'm better at this, or I'm good at that, or I'm like this, but does it change behavior? Nobody is ever going to say, no, I don't happen to be an empathetic person. When you talk about social applications for, not patients, but for students with autism, it occurs to me that with COVID and the anxiety people have had and the fact that they've been isolated for two years, this could be an application that helps the general public. Are there any applications towards that currently? I think that the COVID situation, this experiment of nature that has really affected our lives in so many different ways, is going to have some long-lasting repercussions, and particularly with kids at the early developmental ages, you know, where they would normally go through their trial and error learning in kindergarten, but now they're going to be going into second grade. And, you know, do can we help them out? I think that any kind of social skill training that you develop for, say, if you develop it with autism in mind, you're building out the same kind of conditions and processes that you're trying to improve that would be relevant for everybody. And in fact, that was at the core of a lot of the disability work early on uh, with access and everything was that, you know, yeah, you're making the world a little easier for people with disabilities, but it makes the world easier for everybody else too. And that's a good byproduct. So there's a group at the University of Texas in Dallas at the Center for Brain Health. They built out a social skills application called Charisma. And it's a virtual world that looks really good. It looks like, you know, kind of like the real thing. And it's got school, it's got, you know, coffee shops, uh, streets, you know, you can walk around in this place and they can have characters come up and engage with home environments as well. And the characters, it's like the what people talk about the metaverse or avatar based stuff, but these characters are a little bit more realistic and they can have care professionals or, or staff members run these characters and go through practice sessions for how you go in and ask for a cup of coffee in a Starbucks or whatever. Or if a gym teacher comes up and, you know, starts yelling at you for something, how would you react? And they can create, again, this experiential type learning that they've applied directly with autism and published a number of studies showing improvements in social skills in behavior afterwards and brain change, actually. More activation in certain areas of the brain when they do fMRIs that are underlying social engagement and so on. But all that stuff you could use for kids that may be a little slow because of the impact of COVID or people that, you know, for whatever the reason is, they're socially anxious. You know, you're giving people the opportunity to practice in a very low-risk environment. 
you know, where there's no real bad consequence, you know, like if you try to do it in a real world, people are watching you and, you know, you might get a bad reaction from somebody you practice in some skill with when you go into a, a mall or something, you know, how to introduce yourself to a stranger, you know, or someone behind a counter or whatever it is, you know. And I think that's where therein lies the beauty of what we can do with this kind of simulation technology. I think there's a, a metaphor here that would be relevant, and that is I used to use this when I'd go to psychology conferences and people thought I was like off my rocker talking about virtual reality. And I would say, look, when you're flying home from this conference, would you prefer that your pilot was trained and certified in an aircraft simulator you know, for how to deal with wind shear or fog landing? Would you rather they learned it from a book or getting lectured about it or on the job training, you know? And then people started to get it that now we have safe, systematically controllable stimulus environments that we can, you know, we can deliver in an office space now, essentially in a lot of cases with a $300 headset that doesn't even need a computer. Now all the computing is done on the headset. So the opportunities are here it's a matter of trying to be creative and trying to follow the science for what we know might work in the real world, but can we amplify those effects or can we make them more available? Can we make it safer? Can we engage people by using VR and augmented reality as well? When you say safer, I'm wondering about the use of VR in very young children. What's the safe age as far as we know right now? for kids to start using VR? That's a good question because, you know, if you look at the disclaimers that are on the most popular commercial headsets like the Oculus Quest, they blatantly say not for use by children under 13 years old. Now, is that a liability disclaimer? Because, you know, they figure, you know, maybe a kid will the headset on and, and run around a room and trip over, you know, a stool or you know, fall and injure themselves. Other times, some people say, well, if kids wear a headset too long because it's a, a near eye display, you might have some visual impairment if you use it too much. So there's those issues. But, you know, when we talk about clinical applications of VR, we're not talking about three, four hours a day. We're talking about short doses in a controlled environment. So, you know, for the last 20 years, we've worked with kids with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, where we put children in a virtual classroom and assess how well they can attend to stimulus content, like, you know, content that appears on a whiteboard at the front of the class or what the teacher is saying. And we can systematically present distractions like a bus going by the window or kids walking by the outside window or intercom going off, uh, kids passing notes. And so we can now really get a very good measure of how well they can attend in an environment that's kind of like one of the criterion environments for them anyway, the classroom. And we can systematically control it. We can measure head movement to get the, the hyperactivity component. But we've done that. And our group, I mean, that project started in 98, very primitive, again, the stone age of VR. But there's been probably 20, 22 studies published since then 
with kids, you know, from six years old to all the way up into adults, but six to 13, primarily on the ADHD work, where you don't see, you know, really ill effects. But these are under very supervised conditions, you know, with a clinician right there. The kid's not running around the room and so on. And they're not for long periods of time. So my rule of thumb on this is as long as you keep it under an hour, maybe 45 minutes, depending on the child, and you have them in a supervised context, there's a lot of good that you can, you may be able to do. I don't think children should be ruled out. You just have to be a little bit more cautious. And institutional review boards that review research protocols with kids, you know, have been pretty good about this as long as you have these safeguards in place. It's okay. And there's a lot of kids that can benefit from this. So that's my pitch on, on using it with kids. And I should mention that you and I are having a conversation for informational purposes on the subject of disclaimers. And of course, what we're saying here is not to be taken as medical advice. This is for informational purposes only. Thank you for that. <laughs> what has been one of your own best experiences as a medical professional and as a futurist in any of the aspects of psychology with which you've been working with VR? Oh, man. There's a lot of them. You know, the ones I always think of first are some of the patients that we've treated on the PTSD front, veterans that have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And when you see them turn a corner and really be able to take on the challenges, the demons that are haunting them and see their life turn around. We had one client who, you know, he waited 10 years after he got back before he sought any treatment and it turned his life around. He, you know, he got out and he'd had a lot of problems up to that point. And he wanted to, when he got out of therapy, you know, he had this nirvana, he wanted to serve. So he's a surfer. And so he started a surf camp for disabled veterans and, you know, get them on a surfboard, no matter what their level was. I mean, it was pretty scary with some of these folks, but you could see that joy and giving that came about from him. And he ended up, he's now doing his clinical psychology internship up in Alaska, working with indigenous populations of which is a high level of trauma, by the way. And he's becoming a clinical psychologist, doctor of psychology. And so those, you know, there's a lot of those kind of cases. Certainly there are people that don't benefit. I'm not going to make this sound like it's a magic bullet, but when you see somebody that really gets it and it helps them, it's made for them in a sense, that's really rewarding. You know, we see that a lot with various stroke patients too, that, you know, they do physical therapy or occupational therapy in a VR game-based environment. And all of a sudden, they're able to do things in the VR world that would be almost impossible to do. And they have impact in the VR world that motivates them to push themselves in their physical activity towards, you know, I mean, really, let's face it, rehab is all about making people do physical activities that they can't do so well because, you know, it's hard. It's like learning to play the violin, but in this case, it's reaching for a coffee cup. And so it's very frustrating, but when you put them in a virtual world where they can fly if they move their arms a certain way, they can reach for things. Even if they have limited movement, you can exaggerate it in VR. You can get them to use their hands together. And so you see those patients as well, you know, 
when they're in those worlds, and there's many video testimonials that you can you can find on YouTube where people talk about this. And then finally, the most recent one that I had is with my favorite test subject, my 88-year-old mom, who I whenever I get a new VR program, I bring it home to her and let her give it a go. And the most recent one was with a program called World Traveler, which is put out by a company called Penumbra. And basically, it's about 20 hours of spherical video VR of famous cities around the world. And you put on the VR headset, and every 12 seconds, it updates, but you're standing in front of the Trevi Fountain, you're at the Spanish Steps, you're by Big Ben, depending on the city you're going to. And my mom when she was younger, she went to Rome a bunch with my stepdad and loved it, you know? And so I put her in virtual Rome first off and I got a videotape of her. It's on YouTube and you hear her talking like she was transported 40 years back. And she's saying, oh, me and Carl, we used to go to this little bar by the Coliseum. It was right over there. And you know, she started talking about all this stuff. And, you know, certainly she doesn't she doesn't have dementia. But, you know, when you think about these kinds of applications to give elderly folks who can't travel or can't go to the top of Everest, people have taken spherical cameras up top of mountains like that. You can give people a little respite from the day-to-day doldrums that, you know, necessarily may be part of their life, particularly in, in care facilities. And so... That was a really good one for me to, you know, see my mom light up like that. But, you know, it's all about patience. I mean, certainly I get a rush when we publish a good article with novel findings and all that. And that's, you know, that's part of the job. But the impact that you get when you see people, sometimes the first time they ever did VR, all of a sudden light up. In fact, just Sunday, we were visiting an old friend who unfortunately has early onset dementia with Louis body. She has a difficult time with, with memory. It's really sad, but I brought a headset along to see how she'd like it. And I got her in this game called Beat Saber, which you have these lightsabers and you zap things. And all of a sudden she's like, oh my God, this is so much fun. And she was getting into <laughs> it and swinging it. And her husband goes, that's the most exercise she's got in, in the last three years. And, and in fact, he just sent me an email saying, send me a link to where I can get one of these because she wants to do it again. And she remembered it. That's a thing. She, she doesn't remember a lot of things moment to moment, but she remembered, I want to play that game that Skip brought over. So that really is, those are the, the punchlines, if you will, you know, when you do this kind of work is to, to see, see people you know, get a benefit from it. That's where the joy comes. Where would you most like to see this grow? What do you want to do with virtual reality that you have not done yet in the psychological field? Well, that's a hard one. I'd like to be able to do all the things we've done so far, but do them much better and do them cheaper and do them in a way where we can have wide scale access. So it's a lot of the structural elements I would like to expand our work in the trauma-focused area. We've already gone from combat-related PTSD to military sexual trauma and have encouraging results from that. But I'd like to move that into the civilian sector and also start addressing the needs of police officers, first responders, 
firefighters, so forth, EMTs, the trauma that they face every day, and also healthcare professionals going through COVID, the COVID crisis, where they're burnt out to a nub. And we've got a preliminary project we're going to be doing in Massachusetts on this to help healthcare professionals self-assess their level of burnout with a virtual human interviewer and so on. But that's a toe in the water towards a larger scale of, of promoting wellness in our caregiver area. You know, most people don't realize it, but docs and nurses and other healthcare professionals, they're at the top of the heap when it comes to suicide statistics for occupations. So they're already, that's before COVID, they're already stressed out. And can we help them and help them grow and continue to serve like they do? And the same thing, you know, with police, I think a lot of the problems we have is that people underestimate the amount of stress that it takes to be a police officer, particularly in, a, you know, perhaps an inner city, highly populated area. Every day they're being confronted with some really hard things. And I worry that what's happening is that they're, they're kind of, they might not have full-blown PTSD, they never be diagnosed, but they might have some, some sub-threshold PTSD symptoms, like, you know, the emotional numbing or the hyper-arousal or quick-to-trigger kind of thing. Those are two bad symptoms for having a gun in your hand and making decisions or, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm certainly not, I think policing is essential, but we've got to help folks that are doing that hard job every day. We got to help them sustain themselves. And I think VR could be a mechanism for doing that. We've got a couple of projects on training with the police, like for de-escalation training using communication rather than force when they can. And I think that's a toe in the water as well. Finally, the last one is I want to, again, going back to the kids, I want to do a little bit more focus on adverse childhood experiences. You know, that this is one of the biggest predictors of medical problems later in life and failure to complete high school substance use disorder, juvenile delinquency, you know, and you can actually see direct correlations by the number of these, what we call adverse child experiences, but events of trauma, neglect, dysfunctional households. You see a clear linear relationship to problems later in life. So I don't know. I mean, there are people that are exploring, can you deal with kids in trauma at a young age with Jessica Stone's work with a virtual sand tray thing where the child gets to tell a story through representational objects in VR. I think there's a lot of promise in that. But, you know, maybe you look at teens as they, their brains are still forming. Maybe you can turn back the clock. Maybe you can help them understand at the difficult experiences they had in childhood wasn't their fault. A lot of times they'd taken on themselves, but also how they think about the world as a safe or unsafe place or how they, you know, how they navigate the world. Maybe we can do things in VR that will address that problem early on that we can turn that ship around. So those are, those are the kinds of things. I mean, that's why I got into VR in the first place, I think, because there's no wall here. You know, there's just endless opportunities. Sadly, there's too many opportunities, you know, for mental health challenges. I wish we could snap a finger and, and make it all go away, but we can't. So VR, I think, is 
not a magic bullet, but it's well poised to move the needle forward in addressing wide range of clinical conditions. Uh, so that's that's my excitement still after all these years. What if people want to know a lot more about your work or how to support you? Where do they find out more? Well, I guess you could you could torture me with more emails. <laughs> I try to respond to all of them when I can. But you know, I have a YouTube channel under my name and we've got 140 videos of different applications and patient experiences. We have our website here at USC. You know, so I you know, I publish a good bit, so there's a lot of articles. People can always send me emails and I can bounce them back. Uh, directory of online videos or our most recent writings from our lab and stuff that might be relevant for the area they're interested in. And, you know, if I can squeeze off the time, maybe have a chat, you know, I just, you know, I have to manage that with time issues. But I, I, I do like to share the ideas uh, with people when they when they're passionate, you know, when they when they want to really do something, you know, then that energizes me as well. And finally, this is usually the signature question for my podcast. If people can only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you really like them to take away from your work? Oh, boy. I would say technology is a double-edged sword. You know, we have to be ever vigilant for unintended negative consequences. That the technology itself doesn't fix anybody that it's a tool in the hands of a good clinician or supervisor that can administer good therapy using this tool and not to fear technology, but to, while you're being vigilant of some of the possible negative consequences we all know about with maybe, you know, metaverse things, social media, whatever, to always look ahead to how we can minimize those, but don't cast a blind eye to it. I mean, I really do believe, you know, we got to drag psychology kicking and screaming into the 21st century here, even though they don't need much dragging anymore. Psychology is catching up in a hurry and that there's so much good that we can do and to, you know, have the patience to go through the long haul to do that, because I think there's tremendous benefits and particularly getting people into getting help, destigmatizing, seeking help. That's one of the biggest issues. You know, World Health Organization says uh, there's about 450 million people with mental health problems walking the planet now, and fully two-thirds of them will never see the inside of a therapy office. I mean, that's frightening. I mean, how in mental illness and mental problems, they hurt as much as physical problems. And so if we can help to make any treatment, whether it's tech or not, more acceptable and not scorn people because they ask for help, then that'll that's a good role for technology, I hope. Skip, thank you for your time today. Pleasure. It's good talking to you. You and I have been listening to Dr. Albert Skip Rizzo, clinical neuropsychologist, director of medical virtual reality at USC Institute for Creative Technologies, and research professor for both USC's Department of Psychology and Behavioral Sciences and the USC School of Gerontology. Check out Skip's videos on his YouTube channel under his name, Skip Rizzo, and get a look at what USC Institute for Creative Technologies are doing on their website, ict.usc.edu. 
The preceding podcast was for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional with any medical questions. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.